Well, let's get into the book of Romans. Last time I introduced the last paragraph in the main body of the book of Romans, chapter 15, verses 7 through 13. So beginning in verse 14, we have the conclusion, and it's the longest conclusion of any book of the the New Testament, actually any book of the Bible, I guess. So there's lots of uh, information, I guess you could say, or lots of insights still to come, but part of the uh, conclusion. So this last paragraph underlying the passage is the glory of God, which I think is appropriate and certainly Pauline in that that's a theme that Paul develops in many passages, the glory of God. And certainly I think that's an underlying theme of all of Scripture because I believe that the purpose of all things, purpose of the entire creation is to bring God glory. So I think it's appropriate that Paul ends the main body of the book of Romans on the, uh, with the theme of the glory of God. And again, we're talking about Christians that he's writing to, desiring that uh, we live our lives such that we can glorify God. So we're the last section in the application portion, which ends the main teaching portion, you might say, or doctrinal section of the book of Romans before we get to the conclusion. And it deals with Christian liberty. Paul is attempting through this whole section to prevent conflicts within uh, the body of Christ. And it deals with these particular questionable areas that are not clearly defined, or at least in terms of the experience of the believers, it's uh, not immediately grasped the freedom that we have in Christ. And that freedom sometimes overlaps traditions and backgrounds that people have that are sometimes not easy to uh, think through and live according to the freedom that we have. So that's the main thing that Paul is doing throughout this section. We've broken it down into four parts. We're looking at the last part here, but or the first part, number two on my slide, however. He wants us to accept one another where we're at in terms of these convictions, And people will develop different convictions in these areas of questionable areas. The second major part, number three on my context slide here, 13 through 23, not only are we to to accept one another where, where we are, but it's addressed primarily to the stronger believer who has these freedoms. He is to restrain those freedoms in uh, the presence of those that uh, don't share them. So it's a restraint of one's own convictions for the benefit for the benefit of others. And the others he describes as weaker in faith. And faith in that context, in fact, in this whole context, refers primarily in believing these certain convictions relating to freedom in Christ. And then the next paragraph, beginning in chapter 15, he uses Christ as an example and encourages us along the lines of responsibility of expressing Christ-likeness. Christ restrained himself to the ultimate, limited himself to the, to the cross even, 
in that uh, he took the reproaches of God, and in the same way we are to set aside our freedoms in light of the benefit of others. So he uses Christ as an example. And then the paragraph we're looking at, if we in fact follow the guidance and the instruction that is given, that's going to result in God's glory. So he just starts off kind of with a summary, you might say exhortation that kind of summarizes everything he's talked about so far, contained in verse 7. We looked at it in a little bit detail two weeks ago, and I summarized it a little bit last week. But the exhortation, and I took it as more of a review, you might say, or a summary of everything from 14.1 through 15.6. Wherefore, accept one another, going all the way back to verse 1, where he uses the very same word, accept one another. And I think here it's more broad in terms of both the weak and the strong in faith, accept one another just as Christ, and there's the summary of 15, 1 through 6, just as Christ also accepted us to the glory of God. And he ends the sentence introducing us to this concept of the glory of God. So in outline form, the application of God's righteousness application in Christian liberty, receiving or the reception of differing convictions. Next, the restraint for the building up or edification, responsibility of Christ-likeness, and that results in uh, God's glory. And verse 7, we could say receiving or accepting brothers. I call it sustaining because it kind of summarizes everything that he's talked about. Sustaining brothers I'm starting to alliterate here again, and it ends, the, the verse ends with the glory of God, and just a quick review of what we talked about last time. I gave you a little, what do you call it, uh, excursus, I guess you could say, on the glory of God, kind of summarizing many passages. Some passages focus on God himself. And uh, we could say that when they speak of the glory of God, passages indicate that this is his inherent nature. So there's inherent glory, and there's virtually hundreds of passages that uh, tell us of the glory of God. Some passages indicate that it's only God that has glory, and uh, he, he grants glory, he reveals glory. So some passages stress the revelation of that glory or the revealed glory of God. And in the inherent glory, if you remember, we mentioned that we will never exhaust the nature of God. And when we speak of the glory of God, it's the composite or the summation or the totality of God's perfections. And that glory is beyond our ability to totally grasp And all we know of the glory of God is what God has revealed. And the scriptures reveal something of that glory, but it also indicates that he is beyond what we can even conceive or understand in that revelation. So there's the revealed glory of God, and the scriptures call upon us to glorify God. And I stress the the idea that we can't add to the glory of God So what does it mean to give glory, and what does it mean if we 
in fact, do not have glory, how can we give God glory? Well, first of all, God shares some glory with us in the image of God. But this third aspect is what we, we describe as ascribed glory. When, when we give God glory, we're acknowledging or we're ascribing or we're proclaiming that God is glorious. And that can be done by the way we live. The way we live can glorify God, the things that we say and just verbally praising and adoring and worshiping God that is ascribing glory to him. It does not add any glory because God is infinitely glorious, but he desires that we acknowledge it by ascribing it, ascribing the glory of God. So you can think in terms of the glory of God in these three aspects, inherent glory, that that makes up God, revealed glory, that that God has been pleased to reveal, And we know as finite beings, we cannot comprehend the full glory of God. We looked at a passage that seemed to indicate a little bit of that in in, uh, the book of, was it Exodus? Were we talking about Exodus 34? Yes. You had the attributes of God that are expressed as Exodus 34 through 35, 7. Yep. Yeah, Exodus. That was for inherent glory. Well, both. revealed glory, it was Deuteronomy. Well, also the, yeah, you're right, the inherent glory. Exactly. So that brings us to the next part of 7 through 13, where we have not only the sustaining of brothers, but the service of Christ, verses 8 through 12. And in this, we see, we might even describe it as the plan of God, a very broad summary of what God has done and what Christ has fulfilled. And it's put in the language of the service of Christ using one of the words for for service in verse 8. And somewhat of a, a reason here why everything that he has written so far, including verse 7, is encouraged and exhorted. He begins with the for, in other words, giving us a reason, I say, in other words, in light of this plan of God, this is how we fit in. We fit in by uh, unity in the body of Christ, by uh, edification, all of the things that we've already discussed. For I say, based on what God has done in Christ, I say that Christ has become a has become a servant, and now in very, very broad language, to the circumcision, we ask the question, why would he describe people or a group of people in this way? And more than likely, he's alluding to the Abrahamic covenant. Now, this language is used in other places, but in this context, it obviously is referring to the Jews because he's going to contrast that or add to that in verse 9 when he mentions the Gentiles. So Christ has become, and if you remember, what is the become or has become? What does that indicate to us? Think in broad strokes in terms of Christ and his coming. Anyone remember? Well, Well, I I would say that... Fulfilling, yeah, Jim. 
Well, I would say that coming since he, he came in his humanity, in his humanity, he became something he wasn't before. Yes. As he went, as he, and he went through a sanctifying process. Right. So wrapped up in these little phrases are deep theological concepts. And what Jim is speaking of is what we commonly refer to as the incarnation. And if you remember, it's in the perfect tense which is a past tense, a definite past event with ongoing results. So alluding to the incarnation, Christ is a servant. This also alludes to Philippians 2, where Christ became man, and the idea of servanthood is in that context as well. Humility, servanthood, humanity. All of those concepts are in that Philippians 2 passage. So Christ has become servant, and in this context to the Jewish people, the circumcision, another way of describing them, and like I said, alluding to that Abrahamic covenant in Genesis chapter 17, where the whole uh, ritual was in fact instituted in terms of distinguishing the nation of Israel from other peoples. So servant to the circumcision, and it's on behalf of the truth of God. So last time we developed this idea, here's the plan of God that's laid out. And we looked at the revelation of this plan. And part of the revelation is contained in this verse here, verse 8. But we looked at some other passages in the Old Testament that stresses the the concept that God has a plan, and he's executing that plan. He's carrying it out in history, in time. And in fact, history is actually, at least biblical history, is a record of the unfolding of that plan. And parts of that plan are progressively revealed as you work your way through Scripture, And since we're in one of the final ages of this plan, we have more revelation of this plan than prior generations. For example, the believers in the first century, they did not have as much revelation as we do, particularly the Jewish people. So there's this plan that God has revealed, and this passage tells us that Christ is fulfilling that plan as a servant And this is part of the reason for the incarnation and the coming of what the Jews would describe as the the Messiah. So Christ fulfills a plan, and it's on behalf of the truth of God. In other words, the promises, the covenants, the revelation, the Old Testament, all that contains that truth, it's on behalf of the truth of God, indicating that God accomplishes everything that he sets out and everything that he has revealed, everything that he has prophesied, that is truth. It's unchanging. And we're in the middle of seeing it unfold. And there's things that pertain to even the future. And the past gives us a record of of that truth. So there's, in just very few words here, Paul is summarizing this plan of God on behalf of the truth of God. And there's a purpose for that, the servanthood, to confirm 
the promises. Now that gets to the specifics of this truth. Confirm the promises given to the fathers. And we looked at this verse last time. The fathers, plural, in this context, along with the description of the circumcision and the significance of the Abrahamic covenant, it would include Abraham, but it would also include Isaac, who also was reiterated the Abrahamic covenant, and it would include Jacob as well, because God also reinstituted the Abrahamic covenant with Jacob a couple of times, actually. So this service of Christ is to confirm the promises. We talked about Christ fulfilling the Old Testament in at least four senses last time. And we pretty much ended at verse 9. But before we look at verse 9, verse 8 indicates that this plan is Jewish, referring back to Genesis 12. But it includes Gentiles. So the service is to the Gentiles and, verse 9, for the Gentiles. And if you remember, in fact, uh, somebody go back to chapter 1 and read, read verse 16. I want you to see something there. Somebody else look up chapter 2, verse 9. I've got 116. Okay, Connie's got 116. Somebody get 2-9, and somebody else get 3. Who's got it? I got 9. Okay, 2-9, Steve. And how about 3, 1 through 4? Anyone care to read that one? I'll do 3, 1 through 4. All right, Denise. What about 116? For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Okay. Notice, priority of the Jew. The Jew. Uh, Messiah came for the Jews. All of the Old Testament prophecies contained the Messiah or referred to the Messiah and the coming for the Jewish people. They were God's people. But... Paul's going to demonstrate in the verses that follow, and even including verse 9, the Gentiles also were a part of the plan, but it was to the Jew first and then to the Gentile. And you see that priority in the life of Christ as well. In fact, if you remember, a Gentile woman, Syrophoenician woman, she would have been considered a dog, and she acknowledged it. She came to Jesus, and what does Jesus say to her? Does anyone remember? We don't need to look up the passage. But Jesus is indicating this priority of, of the Jew. Mm-hmm. Do you remember? It wouldn't be right to give the children's bread to dogs. Exactly. Of the house of Israel. Exactly, because he first and foremost is coming for the house of Israel. And in fact... His ministry predominantly was to the nation of Israel and the Jewish people. Now, Jesus also acknowledged her faith. And I think behind the thinking, he was probably aware of all of these passages that Paul quotes, including the Gentiles, but they come through the nation of Israel until after the death and resurrection of Christ. And then the gospel goes to all peoples. So the priority of the Gentiles. Another verse that see it says something similar, 2.9. Steve, you got that one. And actually 2.10, but 
There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also the Greek and talks about Jew first and to the Greek in verse 10 also. Okay, read it. And, but glory and honor and peace to everyone who does good to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Okay, so there's a priority there in the plan of God. Denise, you want to read 3, 1 through 4. Notice the significance of what God is doing amongst the nation of Israel. Yes. Then what advantage has the Jew, or what is the benefit of circumcision? Great in every respect. First of all, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. What then? If some did not believe, their unbelief will not nullify the faithfulness of God, will it? May it never be. Rather, let God be found true, though every man be found a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. Okay, notice the priority of the Jew again and the advantage of the Jew. The whole context is showing that both Jew and Gentile stand condemned and both are in need on an equal basis of the grace of God. But there is a priority in the plan and the working of God, but it does not omit the Gentile. So it's also for the Gentile, and the plan includes Gentiles. And now beginning in uh, the latter part of verse 9, Notice again the theme to glorify God. So the Jew was intended and God's plan intended that they be a, a glory to God. In other words, that people would see something of God. That's why they were to be a separate people, a holy people, that the nations would see a glimpse of God. But now also for the Gentile, that the Gentiles to glorify God for his mercy. So the Jew glorifies God because of the promises of God, the covenants of God, and the Gentiles because of the mercy. Now, he's not saying that mercy was not poured out the, the Jews, but the focus of the Gentiles, they have no promises. They have no claim on the grace of God. It's always on the basis of his mercy. And then beginning in, so the plan. Of, yep. Who's that? Geneva. Joe um, can you uh, expand a little more on on that phrase for his mercy? Um, I'm trying to understand the I don't know how to ask the question, but is for his mercy uh, is it a reason? Is it a result? Is it a, you know what what how can how does that? phrase fit in the context of okay. this sentence. The Gentiles are glorifying God because they are the recipients of God's mercy. I think that's the sense of it. It's not for God. It's because uh, that's the only avenue that Gentiles have. It's, it's actually the only avenue that Jews have as well. But the stress always, and in this context, is the, the mercy of God. Because of sin. In fact, Paul in chapters 3, 3 and 4, and even in 5, is showing that all men are on an equal basis when it comes to condemnation, Jew and or Gentile. So they're all subject to the mercy of God, but especially the Gentile because they have no promises. 
They have no covenants. Is that so, Ray? Ray, uh, uh, would a good example of that be Job? Uh, explain what you mean. Well, he had, as far as we know, he had no covenant. That's right. Uh, he was not the, and he, but he ultimately he he was the recipient of the mercy of God, even though he was extremely tested. Yeah, I guess you could say he was. He would be a good example. Does that answer your question, Joe? In other words, for his mercy in terms of the Gentiles, in terms of glorifying God, because that's the only way that they have access. So, in other words, the word for uh, is causative, in a sense. Or... Seems more like an explanation. Rather than... Yeah, I think it's more explanatory, like Jim's saying. Explanatory. Okay. Okay. Hi, this is Janie. Um, I think if if we continue in this passage, um, Geneva, you'll see... Um, Because when you go on all the way to verse 12 and 13, you know, it it becomes evident, you know, because of the hope they have, we have too, you know, the joy and peace and believing. Okay, maybe I'm just getting We're just kind of picking it apart. Yeah, in fact, uh, Janie Janie is right, uh, right, because you're going to see later on several references to the mercy of God in the context of both Jew and Gentile. Yeah, we'll talk some more about that. Oh, I'm sorry, Ray. I think I might have missed you saying something. I just wanted to clarify um, the Noahic covenant is actually with all did I say, people. Did I, say, did I say Noahic? I, th- I thought I said Abrahamic. Um, no, what, what I heard you say is that there is no covenant with the Gentiles. And I kind of, that isn't strictly correct. Oh, okay. okay. Because the Noahic covenant... Okay. Um, was never um, was before the Jews even existed. Abolished, yeah. right? And it still stands today. Okay. No, I, yeah. I I think that's that's more precise. Exactly. Good point. Good point. But the nations per se don't have covenants like the nation of Israel. Most of the other covenants, the Abrahamic, the uh, land covenant, the Davidic covenant, the new covenant, they are all Jewish. And they pertain to the nation of Israel, but as an as a group of people, even the Noahic covenant, it applies to them. But it's, I guess you could say, it's with the earth and the descendants of Noah, which would be right. Jew and Gentile. Yeah, agreed. Okay. All right, good. That's a good refinement. Great. All right. So now. This plan is for God's glory, the underlying theme here. Now he's going to support it from four passages in the Old Testament. And I mentioned last time, if you look at them, you can come to the conclusion that what Paul is saying, by selecting these passages, he's saying this is a theme of all of the Old Testament. And if you remember, Jesus referred to the Old Testament using three little words. He referred to the law, first five books of the, of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch, first five books of Moses, sometimes referred to in that way. So referred to the law. He referred to the prophets. And in that context, 
This would include the historical prophets as well. So it would include Joshua and the writer of Judges and First and Second Samuel, as well as Isaiah, Jeremiah, etc. And the, the writings that would include the, some of the poetic books. And uh, I think Daniel would be included in that one. And I can't remember some of the others as well. So that three-part breakdown of the Old Testament, the law, the prophets, and the writings, and these quotations come from all three of those. So I mentioned last time that Paul may be hinting here that this is a theme. This is a major theme of all of Scripture. And the first one we have at the last part of verse 9, the glorification among Gentiles. I'm stressing the idea that Gentiles are present, and that seems to be the emphasis of that that psalm that is quoted. Here's the psalm. As it is written, and by the way, that's a favorite word of Jesus himself, referring to the Old Testament, because that is what was written, the authoritative writings. As it is written, and now he quotes from the Septuagint version of of Psalm, what is it? Psalm 18:49, as it is written, therefore I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. Now, if you read the context, this is a, a Davidic psalm. David is the writer of the psalm, but it's also recognized as messianic. And David, as the representative, you might say, or the prototype of the Messiah, is speaking of victory amongst the Gentiles and praising God for that victory. Therefore, I will give praise to you, God, among the Gentiles. So Paul is applying this in this context to awaken that God is glorified amongst the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are not excluded from the dealings of God and what God has done historically and what is recorded in the scriptures. God is glorified or is given praise, and it's amongst the Gentiles. So the Gentiles are exposed to the glory of God. It is evident to them or can be evident to them And here's one example of it in a a psalm that touches on a historical incident in the life of David that looks beyond David. So we have God's truth here showing that out of the writings, which would have been the Psalms representative of the writings in Psalm 1849, and incidentally, it is also quoted in 2 Samuel twenty-two fifty, the identical phrase. And then it goes on, and I will sing to your name. And if you remember Hebrew poetry, of which the Psalms are predominantly written in Hebrew poetry, you have parallelism. In other words, you have one line, and you have another line that is similar to the other line in some way. It can be antithetical. It can be an opposite, or it can be something very similar. And if it's similar, we call it synonymous parallelism. And that's what we have here. I will give praise to you among the Gentiles. And then almost the same idea in another line, 
and I will sing to your name. So glorification, praising, singing, worshiping, two lines. So you have synonymous parallelism just to reinforce the first line with the second line, essentially saying the same thing. The repetition drives the point home. So the idea of being glorified amongst the Gentiles and ultimately Messiah is glorified amongst the Gentiles. And if you look at the psalm, you'll see there are some other messianic elements to it as well. So the first scripture is from the Psalms, or we might broaden it from the, uh, the writings. And then it's glorification. Not only is glorification among the Gentiles, praise and singing among the Gentiles, but glorification with the Jews. And notice there's some progression here in the quotation of these Old Testament passages. And very simply, in verse 10, we have a quotation again, referring back to it is written or what has been written. Uh, another passage again, he says, and now he quotes out of Deuteronomy 32:43. Again, he says, rejoice, O Gentiles. In other words, Gentiles now join in with his people, the glorification amongst the Jewish people, amongst the people of God. And interestingly, this is a prophetic passage, even prophetic from the church age. It looks to a time of Messiah, and in fact, a, a period preceding and including the second coming. And in that time frame, probably the Great Tribulation, there's going to be rejoicing of Gentiles alongside of Jewish people. And we know from several passages, particularly Revelation chapter 7, that there's going to be a great conversion of Gentiles during the Great Tribulation, along with a great turning, in fact, a restoration of the entire nation. Not that every single Jew will believe, but there's going to be a revival amongst the Jewish people, but it's also going to extend to the Gentiles and there will be great rejoicing amongst the Gentiles. And this is all the way back in Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 32. And if you read the whole context of that passage, it speaks of uh, the coming of Messiah. And at that time, there will be rejoicing of, uh, of the Gentiles along with the nation of Israel. So now we have a passage that is out of the law, out of Deuteronomy 32:43, So we have two parts of the Old Testament before us. We've got the last phrase there. Uh, with his people, emphasizing with the Jewish people. And now this glorification is going to be united. It's not only amongst the Jews and with the Jews, but there's going to be united glorification. And that brings us to verse 11. And again, and notice the theme of glorifying God or praising God or worshiping God. And again, and it's a quotation, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples praise him, including the Jews. So all nations, all Gentiles, all people. And again, what do we have here? What kind of parallelism? It's not antithetical. 
Synonymous. Synonymous again. Synonymous parallel. Two lines again. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the people praise him. Gentiles, all people, and you might even extend all people, including Jews, but the focus is the Gentiles. So the idea of worshiping as a, as a unit, uh, together, a united praising of all people in uh, the quotation. And this comes out of uh, the writings as well. In this case, from uh, Psalm uh, 117.1. In fact, this is one of the smallest psalms in all of the Bible. And I think if you turn there, you might turn there and we can read the whole psalm to, to get the flavor of the psalm and also some other things within the psalm. Somebody care to read the two, two verses? I'll read it. Okay. Now, the quotation is out of verse 1. Go ahead and reread it and then read verse 2. Okay. Praise the Lord, all nations. Laud him, all peoples. For his loving kindness is great towards us. And the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. And that's all caps. So praise Yahweh or Jehovah. Good. And actually, hallelujah would be the Hebrew. Uh-huh. There. That's hallelujah. The, that's yes. The, that's yeah, the, shortened. Mm-hmm, the Hebrew, right. Hebrew. So total praise, including all the nations. So God envisioned all of the nations ultimately and eventually, and in the millennial kingdom, this will be fulfilled. God includes Gentiles. And that's the point that Paul is driving home in the passage that we have here. So praise the Lord, all the Gentiles, and let all the people praise him, synonymous parallelism. And now an interesting passage out of Isaiah, and this is the only one that he identifies as the location. Again, Isaiah says... There shall come, now this is prophetic, there shall come the root of Jesse. And if you look in the genealogy of David, uh, Jesse is in that genealogy, but ultimately it looks ahead to the ultimate David, you might say, or the ultimate king. And it's a reference, it's a messianic reference, and just to complete our little chart here of God's truth. So we have from the writings, two passages, from the law, Deuteronomy, and now we have from the prophets, almost indicating that this permeates all of the Old Testament. This is not a minor idea that Gentiles are included. And by the way, remember when we looked at the Abrahamic covenant, we mentioned that it includes the Gentiles, not that it's given to the Gentiles. The Abrahamic covenant is with Abraham and his descendants, but the intent of the Abrahamic covenant is that the Jewish people would bless all the nations, that they would be a blessing, and that God would evaluate all of the nations on the basis of how they would return that blessing or whether they would return it in cursing. So, This is a major theme, according to Paul, in the selection of these passages in uh, the book of Romans. And he, this messianic descendant, he 
who arises to rule over the Gentiles. That's a millennial passage. The Messiah is going to rule over the Gentiles. This is in Isaiah. In him shall the Gentiles hope. So the hope of the Gentiles is going to be in the Jewish Messiah that comes from the root of Jesse, or you might even say a descendant of Jesse. And other passages stress David, who in many passages is a foreshadowing of the Messiah. So here we have another passage that uh, tells us that God has a plan that in fact includes the Gentiles and the Gentiles put their hope in this Messiah. And you might say that you may see a partial fulfillment in that we put our hope as Gentiles in the Jewish Messiah during the church age. And there's going to be an ultimate hope of Gentiles that uh, will be fulfilled in the millennial kingdom. So that's a little bit of the support that Paul gives for the idea of the unity of Jew and Gentile and why we, in fact, should overlook these these differences in convictions and, and look at them in a bigger perspective in terms of what God is doing in a big plan of uniting Jew and Gentile in the body of Christ that would include all of these different backgrounds and different hangups that we might may have. And we should be striving, as it says in Ephesians, to preserve the unity that has been established by Jesus Christ. Well, let's save verse 13 for next time. And let me just conclude with a quick look at what Paul is doing in this passage is preserving that unity, preventing the conflicts. And we might even say, using a little image here, we might compare the church. The church is like porcupines on a freezing night. And you can identify with that. They need to huddle together for warmth and protection, but are very prickly, right? We tend to prickle one another. Is that a word? Prickle? Is that a verb? (laughs) So that's kind of our situation. We have things that uh, sting others. We have things that irritate. We have things that others find offensive. But we need to huddle together because that's the emphasis of not only Scripture and this unity that God desires. And next time, what I'd like to do is stress this unity, and we'll look up some of these passages next time. But I'd like to start by emphasizing that this is not just the church we see in the Old Testament, that this is just a characteristic of people. Our nature is to divide. Our nature is to have issues with one another. Our nature is to have conflicts. And you see this in a big way in the nation of Israel, the, the kingdom is divided, and the passages that I've got quoted there or noted there talk about a future time when God will, in fact, bring back together. God is the only one that can establish unity. We are the ones that are always dividing. We are the ones that are separating. 
But it's always God's desire that we be united. We have a couple of Old Testament passages that indicate a reuniting of Israel and Judah after the division of the kingdom. And then there's lots of passages, Jew, Jew and Gentile in the first century, even hints of it in, uh, in the Gospel of John and elsewhere. And then there's some clear passages like Ephesians 4 that we'll want to look at next time and others that stress the need for unity within the body of Christ. So that's probably a good place to stop for, for today. Any comments? Um, I have a question. All righty, Maddie. Um, and you kind of alluded to it, and maybe this is not the scope of the study, but um, so in Isaiah 11.10, Paul's quotation that occurs in verse 12 is uh, different, very different in the second part than when I go to my uh, Old Testament, my New American Standard, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 10. Uh Uh-huh. And um, so there's uh, some textual variation going on there. Yes. Um, yeah, can and you there's, tell there's me a, anything about that? Or Yeah, it gets into a little complicated <laughs> issues. <laughs> well, uh, that's why I said maybe it's not the scope. <laughs> um, yeah, part, so. of, part of the issue is, is he quoting out of the Septuagint or is he quoting out of a Hebrew and, and this is a common problem in a lot of quotations, even in the book of Romans. Okay. A lot of times I'll just not comment on it because it just takes too much time to, to try to explain all of the details. And in some cases, I don't even understand some of the arguments in, in terms of what's going on. And in the case okay. here, yeah. I, my Bible says it's a combination of Isaiah 11 verse 1. And verse 10. Well, verse 1, then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse. Yes. So verse 1. And then uh, verse 10, then it will come about in that day that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for his peoples and his resting place will be glorious. And that's where Maddie has a problem. And then if you go to verse, what is it, 12, Maddie? Uh, Well... Uh, yeah, in Romans chapter 15, verse 12. Right. Oh, okay. Um, yeah. And he arises to rule over the Gentiles. In him, the Gentiles shall hope. And yet, when we go to Isaiah eleven ten, 10, um, he is a stand as a standard or a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. Um, so... Paul is interpreting the word peoples there as well. So there's some interpretive issues there. There's some textual issues there. Uh, Yeah, the word there is not goyim, I'm assuming. I'll have to look it up. But he's probably using a different synonym for goyim. And Paul, I think, is interpreting in uh, the Romans passage. At least that's part of it. And there's some other textual issues as well. All right. Well, thank you for addressing that. You're welcome. That's why we're here. We want to try to best understand the scriptures. Any other comments before we get into a time of prayer? Okay. Connie says that we are praying for the Newfells. 
We should be praying for not only the believers in Afghanistan, but basically the unbelievers as well. There, there's going to be a lot of death, a lot of death of both believers and unbelievers. Well, let's do it. Lord, we do thank you for taking the new felts safely back home. And we pray for this plan and project that they have. Uh, we know they've had a lot of years of experience in counseling, and they could rub probably help a lot of people. So we pray that they will be able to get help in making their uh, services known so that uh, Christians or others can get the help that they need. And uh, we just pray that, especially now that there's people are spending more time on the internet because they aren't allowed to socialize and perhaps they will be able to uh, um, get in touch with people like Matt and Robin to get the help that they need. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you that you have a plan, that you have a plan that covers this whole world. Thank you for reminding us of that, of this plan, even as we're getting back all topsy-turvy because of COVID, because of Afghanistan, because of Haiti, because of turmoil in other places. And Father, help us to remember that your plan involves shaking up of things, that you are challenging the rulers of darkness of this world as you are bringing your plan to completion. Father, I do pray for those who face martyrdom for their faith. And I thank you and I praise you that those who have been martyred have a special covering, a special place under your, under your throne that the rest are before you, but you shelter those who have been martyred. You cover them in robes of righteousness. Father, I pray that, that uh, those who are facing that will remember what you have for them, that this is not the end of all they hoped for, but really is a fulfillment. We pray that we see judgment coming to America. And Father, we have to confess that we deserve every bit of it and more. Mm -hmm. And pray that you will encourage your children to stand firmly in place, stand firmly in, in the very truth of your word. Thank you for Ray's teaching of this so that we, are with, we, we have the knowledge to be able to stand in your truth. And we simply lift this world up as you are bringing this age to seemingly bring this age toward its end. We give you praise and thanks for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.